Hey, podcast family. Did you know that on May 2nd and 3rd, 2024, our 3D Growth Summit is happening in Nashville, Tennessee? But in-person tickets are already sold out with nearly 400 attendees. But you don't have to miss out. You can get exclusive access to our live stream and post-event recordings for just $395. Yes, you heard that right. For a single fee, you and your entire dental team can learn from our industry leaders with online recordings available after the event. So secure your spot now before it's too late by visiting www.3d-dentist.com slash 3D Summit or give us a call at 855-332-2285 and get your tickets for the live stream and event recording today. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Welcome to T-Bone Speaks with Dr. Tarun Agarwal, where our goal is to change the way you practice dentistry by helping you achieve clinical, financial, and personal balance. Now, here's your host, T-Bone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of T-Bone Speaks. I'm your gracious host today, T-Bone, and today I have a wonderful guest. I wanted to bring an industry uh, person in. Uh, One of the things I like to do uh, maybe differently in our podcast is I want to bring in uh, lots of guests, uh, and certainly, you know, Chuck and I like to talk about various things that we see going on in practice, but I want to bring in guests. A lot of times my guests are people that you don't meet, and and really I don't want to bring the same guests that you hear on other podcasts, Uh, and I know that um, I believe that there's a great synergy between our profession and between our manufacturers. And too many of us have an adversarial adversarial relationship. And I think it's sometimes good to hear things from the manufacturer end because it gives us um, insight into what they're thinking, where things are going. And uh, it's always helpful to know what's coming down the pipe. So I have a Mr. Don Bell from Ivoclar Vivident on today. Don, how are you doing? I am doing very well this evening. How are you doing? I can't complain. Uh, you know, I know life is good in the Chicago office. Of Iva Clark Vivident. It is very good. Uh, <laughs> I'm enjoying, I've been here, uh, it'll be about a year and a half now. And uh, I like it. I like the city a lot. Love actually love the city a lot. I love the place I'm in. So it's going very well. Well, you know, just in case uh, Mr. Ganley is visiting or listening, uh, we want to let him know that uh, the investment in the Chicago office is paying off quite well. And Don is working all the time and keeping people in check. Very good. I appreciate that. (laughs) So I I still don't understand why you would go from Buffalo or Amherst to sunny Chicago. It's not like you made a big weather update there. No, but there were uh, were other factors for me. It was... uh, as you know, because we've spoken and got a chance to work together on events and symposiums, I travel quite a bit. And the travel schedule and getting anywhere from Buffalo, New York to really anywhere in the country is always multiple stops. So when I was going out to even, say, to Arizona or out to the West Coast or even yeah. East, it's always connect, connect, right? So every trip was two legs out, two legs back. And multiply that times a lot of trips, it really becomes a lot of wear and tear. And it was, it became difficult. You get weather delays, you miss a flight. Especially in Buffalo. Yes. Or even can I connected a lot through like Chicago or Philly, you know, connecting to other parts of the country. So it became, that became a bit of a challenge. And I also had some opportunities and different changes in my personal life that I really wanted to get to Chicago. So that along with the the change in, uh, or dealing with a travel schedule that was becoming it was challenging. It was challenging. So now uh, I get a chance to work out of my home office here. I'm in Buffalo consistently. 
usually a couple times a month uh, for our open house programs and other meetings and sessions that we have. And I use the technology, which has really been great to connect, stay connected to our office and stay connected to our field reps. And I still travel a fair amount. But as you know, from being in a hub city like Chicago, it's one trip out, one trip back. So the amount of my trips have gone are shorter because of the location and also quicker because of the uh, less legs per trip. So, And from Chicago, you can be anywhere in the world. Literally. Yeah. Personally, I have to say it's been really dramatically better for me uh, to do what I do and do my job, stay connected to our company, but also be able to still be mobile. So it's been, it was, it worked out. It has worked out so far extremely well. I think for me and our. Well, you have to say that too, by the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Don, let, let's, let's let our listeners know. I mean, who are you? What do you do? What's your role at Ivoclar? I mean, give us the scoop on who is Don Bell. Sure. Uh, as you said, my name's Don Bell. I'm the director of marketing for CADCAM for Ivoclar Vividen. And our company is uh, a small, relatively small, privately held firm uh, based in Sean Lichtenstein. We have global uh, facilities all around the world. And for almost 14 and a half years, I was based in the Amherst location, which was the North American headquarters. Uh, that's where our president, Bob Ganley, resides. As well. He's also the global CEO. We have a beautiful training facility, test facility in Amherst to test materials. Uh, we're a focused dental company, focusing all on dental. And I've spent now, July will be 16 years for me in the dental industry. And I've had a real growing up period in this industry where I came in, um, my first categories of products that I managed were ProCAD blocks and Verilink 2 cement. And that evolved into curing lights. And then I got a chance and opportunity with Dr. Michael Gaglio to develop and launch our first diode laser, uh, which led to the second, the third, and the fourth. And eventually we got out of that category due to really a change in distribution and a change in, in philosophy in the, in the market and the industry. And it's afforded me opportunities to stay really to get involved in the digital field right away. And when I first got in the industry and really stay in it my entire time. So I've gotten a chance to see the evolution of CAD CAM technology, how the materials have evolved, what came out when, you know, for us, it's been a development of an entire process of developing products like blocks, cement, furnaces, characterization tools, all this to make it, make the CAD CAM process in one visit very efficient. And I think as a company, we've done very well. And I think part of it is because we've had people that have been ingrained in our organization, like myself, I'm going on 16 years and I'm not the only one. There are, you know, literally probably a dozen people in our organization that are in that, I'd say probably 12 to 18 year range of experience in the dental market, some more. And it really gives you a great knowledge base to pull from. I think we work together extremely well. I think it gives us a huge advantage of of knowledge of what's worked in the past and maybe what hasn't, but also the ability to kind of look forward and, you know, not get too locked into what was, you know, I don't, I think we're a little conservative in some respects, but I think we kind of think a little bit beyond that most times. So my background besides this, I was actually uh, uh, an accounting undergrad uh, from a small school called St. Bonaventure University. I went back, got my master's in marketing and I worked for the first four years uh, in accounting cost accounting for a manufacturing company, got into in a clothing in the clclothing industry, got into industrial valve uh, business to business products, and then transitioned into dentistry so they 've all been good really, really good experiences for different reasons. You know my first job afforded me the ability to see and experience a really large company with multiple divisions and and that was publicly traded and that was difficult um, as I 
my first two jobs actually were publicly traded companies. And that is a tough environment to be in sometimes. And uh, transitioning into dental became a little bit a mix of trying to reach the dentist almost like a consumer um, in terms of influencing and communication, but also a lot of education and knowledge-based uh, information on how products work and why they work. And also being private, I think I've enjoyed much more. It gives you a different perspective as a private organization. Well, there's more flexibility in private companies, I believe. Yes, you have the ability to, to do things really at your own discretion to some extent, but also on your own timeline. So if you so choose to ride out a situation, uh, you ride it out. And if you want to make a move, you make a move. And um, there's not really pressure from investors. We have a, It's a family-owned company, so we have one investor and uh, one owner. And I think he's done, I think he's generally extremely pleased with our organization and how we've grown uh, over the last 20 years especially. So I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of it. Digital has been a huge part of our growth in the last 10 years especially. And uh, it's been really fun to be a part of it. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity I had when I first started and uh, to still be involved in it today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, podcast family. T-Bone here to talk about the 3D Dentist Digital Implant Continuum. Are you ready to start placing dental implants but feeling a bit hesitant and or overwhelmed? I know that feeling. I've been there. Let's change that together. Imagine not just learning about dental implants in a classroom, but actually performing surgeries on real patients right here in North Carolina, guided every step of the way by our expert 3D mentors. This is dental implant learning at its best, using techniques that are safe, predictable, and confidence-boosting. They're exactly what I use in my own practice, so you know they work. Our course goes beyond clinical skills. We prepare you to successfully integrate high-demand implant services into your practice, transforming your career by attracting new patients and elevating your practice. And it doesn't end with the course. Completing our program is just the beginning of a new journey. You'll be a part of a community of confident, skilled dentists with ongoing support to ensure lasting success and growth. After all, this is about mastering a skill that can transform your career just like it did for me. So, are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Visit www.3d-dentist.com, check out our upcoming sessions, and join us to revolutionize your practice. 3D Dentist is truly committed to helping dentists take control of their practice, finances, and future. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. You know, my first experience with... um with Ivoclar in a meaningful way was uh, at an event uh, called Smilenium. I don't think you guys do it anymore down in Orlando. To, to date, it's still one of the best events. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the time in my career. That I, I want to say that was probably 2005 or, yeah. so, or so. And, you know, I was, I was about four or five years out of school. And, you know, I was, I was quite uh, out of my element to say uh, me and Samir came uh, representing the young guys. I think we were probably the only only digital owners there at the time, too. Yeah, we used to run. And now we it's interesting. We've done, uh, and you were part of a, an event we did earlier this year, which is more, I guess, theoretical in nature of what we were trying to get and understand how the digital work process works in an office and where it might be heading to. In the past, when I first started, CADCAM was you know the redheaded stepchild to our organization. We were a lab company. Yeah, we made some blocks. Um, for the machines and, you know, the machines were in, I was in Sarek 2 when I first started. So Sarek 2 was, you know, it was wireframe designs and 
Cirque 2 wasn't very good. <laughs> trying to imagine. I used to remember the line. You have to imagine it in 3D or three-dimensional. I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> so it was funny, but it's funny to look back on now. And then you see how, it, how it's advanced to, to 3D. Today, it's just incredible. And when, you, when you're involved in it early on, you get a much, I think, deeper perspective for how fast it's grown. But now it's really digital is fully integrated in our organization as a mainstay of how we grow and how we run our business. Um, when we run events, some are just completely CAD CAM events now. And we work with speakers and SOIs because that's the predominant strategy that we're developing. And um, it's not that we don't work with doctors or, or groups that don't do digital, but lab business is predominantly digital uh, in some respects, whether it's receiving file or design work or milling. And chairside's growing extremely fast as well. So I think we've been positioned well, but it's, it is pretty amazing how uh, how it's changed. I'll, I'll tell you a really funny story. Uh, if I can, I'll try to make it brief. When I first started, I couldn't have been with the company more than a year or two. And we were at the Chicago midwinter meeting. We were hosting a dinner and it was, it was almost like a, it was a combination lab doctor appreciation dinner. And they brought in, uh, I think if I remember correctly, they brought in cases that, you know, doctors that work with certain labs on and uh, it was a celebration. It was a celebration of the lab and dentist partnership and how that affected. And it was really Empress at the time. It was our Empress material. That was a flagship product for us. I was sitting at a table with a lab as a host. And we had, you know, I don't know how many tables we had. So we were all spread out as employees. And I was hosting a table. And I remember, I'm not going to use any names, but a lab, I was hosting a lab. The lab owner who was at the, lab, at the table um, asked me, you know, Oh, you know, I introduced myself. He said, so what do you do for Iva Clark? I said, I work in marketing. He's like, well, that's cool. And uh, he goes, what, you know, what area are you working? You work in the lab side. You work, I, I don't think we've, you know, dealt with you in the past. I go, well, I actually work on the clinical side of the business. He's like, all right, that's good. And I told him I managed blocks and cement. And it was like <laughs> conversation turned abruptly from, wow, that's pretty neat to why are you? I hate you. <laughs> yeah. Why are you at my table? You're taking business from us. And it was, it was one of those really awkward moments where you looked at what ran through my head was you got to be kidding me like you're going to be everyone's going to be doing digital restorations whether the design scan sending files milling them in labs or in offices like this is it's crazy but it was very i'll say very provincial the labs were very provincial back in the day and they saw cad cam as a direct competitor and now um it's a completely different philosophy i would and you would know better than me but i would say from a pure business perspective, labs represent a bigger business than than chairside do for a company. Would you, is that probably true? Yes, although that gap is closing dramatically. Is it really? Yeah. So you're saying chairside is catching up to at least in Ivaclar's eyes. Yeah, in our world. Yeah, in our world, it's closing the gap. Yeah, we're going to be. I mean, <clears throat> as machines continue to grow, uh, there will be a point, most likely, where we'll have more materials. And again, I'm, I'm assuming nothing dramatic changes in the industry, but right. if that continues, we will probably pass in the not too distant future, our lab revenue that we generate uh, our business from our lab side. And that includes um, pressable as well as. Oh, that includes millable. Yeah. Right now we don't do a lot of millable products on our lab side because mostly other than Emacs, they're pressing. Well, they're pressing a lot of Emacs. A lot of labs went back to pressing. Yeah. Um, and their millings are coney out of pucks. So our business is okay in that category, but other, other lab businesses are doing much better um, or much higher growth in that category. So, Well, you said the, the Z word. 
<laughs> so let's uh, <laughs> the Z word. So um, so before okay, before we get to the Z word. So basically, if for any of our listeners who are Sarek or even E4D owners or any CAD CAM owners, Don, would you say that you you are essentially the direct contact at Ivoclar for anybody that has digital uh, digital questions or digital you know material issues and stuff yeah. like that? Particularly, yes, particularly chair side because our group, my myself and my group manage our relationships and partnerships with our approved milling partners. Right now, we only have two chair side. We have Serona, Densply Serona, uh, and Planmeca um, that makes the Planmeca Fit machine now. So, Plan, what is it called now? Planmeca Fit. It's not E4D anymore. E4D is now the manufacturing entity down in Dallas. Okay. Uh, Planmeca, as when they bought into the uh, partnership, now manufactures and sells a system under their brand name. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So we have our relationships really go deep with our milling partners and our distributor partners that work with those full systems. So it's a very, you know, in our world, our CAD CAM world, to answer your question, yes, everything runs through myself and my team. And it's a very small pool right now of people that we work with. All right. So let's let's get to the Z word now. Okay, zirconia. So, so let me ask you this: Is Ivoclar in the zirconia business? How does zirconia affect Emacs? And what, where is Ivoclar's position on zirconia? Uh, okay, so question one: We are in the zirconia business. We purchased a company called Beeland. Mm-hmm. I might be off on the years. It was a couple of years ago to essentially capture and purchase their brand of zirconia called Xenostar. And since we've developed the Xenostar brand uh, a little bit more, refined it, uh, added an MT medium translucency uh, to the zirconia we just launched this past year in puck form for the Velen Mill. And that business is going pretty well. It's not going, it's not growing as fast as Bruxier well, but it's growing pretty well. It's an aesthetic. We we trans we're trying to trans translate, or I shouldn't say that, I should say advance the original zirconia of Xenostar that was nice you know, maybe a little bit more traditionally opaque, not super aesthetic, into something that's more, that fits with our, our core values and our brand. So it's going to be high performance, but also very aesthetic material. Um, Xenostar is our brand. It's doing, like I said, it's doing pretty well uh, within the system that we currently sell to labs, the VLN uh, milling systems. How do we see it affecting Emacs? It's directly affecting Emacs every day. There's no two ways around it. If I'm a doctor today, that let's say a doctor that doesn't own a machine, I'm making a decision every day on what material I'm writing a prescription for. And six out of 10, seven out of 10 are writing prescriptions for full counter zirconia. Is it that big now? It's big. And we, I mean, we kind of guess there's not like a lot of really super credible lab data. So you have to kind of piece together what we think is going on, but it's very, very high. It's very high. Is PFM dead now, finally? PFM is still... It still exists. It's declining, and it's probably declining much faster than even we can track. Uh, but I think there's still a fit for it. Uh, what? Like what? <laughs> I think one of the things I like about it as it currently exists is that I think it gives you some flexibility with the alloy that you use and the ceramic to create an anatomically supported ceramic restoration, which is going to avoid the chipping that you saw maybe with layered zirconia. That's going to look pretty aesthetic. I could make the argument, you know, if I put one next to a zirconia restoration, which would I look, which would look better? I guess it probably depends on the material and the shade you're matching and what zirconia you're using. 
but I think it has some flexibility to it. And I also think, frankly, some doctors are just very comfortable and don't want to change. PFMs work. I've been using PFMs for 20 years in my practice. They look great. You know, they're functionally very sound. Yeah, occasionally maybe maybe a cuspal chip over time, and I'll either replace it or repair it, but I'm pretty happy. But I think what's happened is, so I think that's kind of a, it's becoming more and more of a niche. I just think it's more habit that people are using. I think what it's really translated to uh, or migrated to is people are making decisions between I'm getting out of zirconia or metal-based, I'm sorry, not zirconia, I'm getting out of metal-based restorations to something. So I want to go to something that's strong, that won't break, that looks good. For a while, a lot of people jumped on the Emacs bandwagon um, and jumped on it because I think the durability and the aesthetics. I think zirconia took its place with everyone else who hadn't moved from PFM. So there are a lot of people that jump out of uh, the PFM market. And zirconia, I think, is fitting now with people that are looking to change that really want something that won't break. That's like a white metal that's not going to fracture. So I think based on your criteria as a clinician of what you're looking for, um, zirconia is a really, really good solution because it's, it's extraordinarily durable and it doesn't break, really, virtually ever. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, podcast family. T-Bone here bringing you our newest live patient implant training, Full Arch Express. For dentists already placing implants and ready to level up and continue building their implant practice, this is the golden ticket. We're diving deep into Full Arch Implants, the hottest game changer in implant dentistry. In this program, we tackle both overdentures and all next fixed hybrids, mastering techniques that are essential for modern, comprehensive dental care. It's about getting your hands on the tools and techniques that will replace the doubt and fear with confidence and predictability. Here's the kicker. There's live patient training right here in North Carolina. You're not just learning theories. You're in the operatory doing real work on real patient from start to finish, guided one-on-one by our expert 3D mentors. You'll learn the nuances of each approach, ensuring you can cater to a wide range of patients to maximize revenue. Speaking of revenue, with me, you know it's not just about the clinical skills. We're bringing business into this aspect too teaching you how to integrate these advanced services profitably into your practice. So are you ready to rise up to the top in implant dentistry? Join us at the Full Arch Express. This isn't just another course. It's a career-defining leap. Head to www.3d-dentist.com to enroll in our next session. 3D Dentist is truly committed to helping dentists take control of their practice, finances, and future. Now, back to this week's episode. Okay, so then let me ask you this. Why, why, why is Ivoclar not in the Zirconia business chair side? We have a plan for it. Okay. I think Zircon- or Serona was a little bit faster in this regard than we were. So now what we're trying to do is adapt our plan to make sure that whatever we do create, if possible, will work in their furnace. Okay. We also realized, okay, they, they developed a really cool technology uh, to fast center Zirconia. And soon enough, we'll be able to center Emacs uh, or crystallize Emacs. So okay. what we want to do now is say, okay, if that's, if that's going to become a baseline uh, furnace technology that people are going to get for, you know, a couple units at a time, then we need to make sure our stuff will work in their furnace. So that's great, by the way. I, I you know, I, I always say that about uh, 
uh, some of the good, I, I say good companies, and I consider Ivoclar one of them, is, is instead of saying, instead of poo-pooing it and saying it doesn't work, you're saying, listen, if that's where the market's going, we want to survive and we want to thrive in that market, so we should make our product and make sure that our product works in that furnace. So what Don's talking about is uh, Serona released their Speedfire oven probably in the last uh, three or four months. And yeah. what this does is it allows you to do zirconia chair side in approximately, let's call it 30 minutes from start to finish out of the milling unit to, to finished. And that oven should, and we want it to be able to do uh, the Emacs crystallization as well. So it sounds like you guys are already developing that or testing that or getting close to releasing that, uh, that program, let's call it. Yeah, that'll be step one. And then because um, we need to get that in the furnace sooner than later just because um it it becomes a real headache as you can imagine if you're a new owner today i don't want to buy eight furnaces yeah like what's the message it gets confusing and it's not it's very it's very unstable it, it sends a bad message partners can't or the the partners or working partners can't get on the same page and it looks clunky right so we'll get that nailed down i think probably um i'm not exactly sure when but i know we're getting close we had some challenges we had to overcome with the size uh, of the muffle and a few of the other accessories that didn't fit in it and the firing technology, but I think we're getting close. Uh, and then the plan would be, you know, our, our zirconia developments, hopefully we'll be able to work in that furnace. Um, that, that'll be interesting to see if that actually works because we are realizing that um, when we released, and again, their technology furnace is different, so it may work. But when we released our medium translucency Xenostar, it is a longer, it's a long sintering process. It's more traditional sintering time to get better translucency and aesthetics. And I think we think there might be a correlation a little bit between time and translucency, maybe a direct correlation. And we don't know if we can overcome it just by raising the temperature faster. So that's something we're working on in their technology furnace to try to figure out, is there a way to, to do a a medium translucency zirconia that really looks like, hopefully looks like Emacs in their furnace in a very short time period as well, or is it going to take longer? And if so, how much longer to get the aesthetics? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because that's what I've also seen. So, And we've had faster firing zirconia, but it's always come at the, what seems to be the compromise of aesthetics. So for our listeners, uh, traditional zirconia, solid zirconia is f- typically fired or crystal, uh, sorry, uh, sintered for eight hours uh, in most uh, laboratories. And in the laboratory process, they can put, you know, 20, 30 restorations in a big furnace and they can, you know, set it and forget it. Whereas in the chair side process, you know, we don't, what's the benefit? If we have to have the patient come back for a second visit, it doesn't matter if it's one day or two weeks at that point. So our right. goal chair side is to get things down to, uh, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes or, you know, in a perfect world, uh, we, we would love to have milling units that essentially milled things in their final state. Right. And I agree. I think and really believe that when we, we, talk, about, we talk about strategies after Chicago. So Serona launched the furnace in Chicago. We got a chance to see it. And they were really great because we sat down on Thursday at Chicago with their team when they released it, went through demos and saw how it worked. It's impressive. I mean, it's really to watch the the workflow in that technology furnace. It's pretty impressive to watch how simple it is to use, which I think is, is extremely important for new owners and adoption of new technology. And when we came back, we were t- kind of talking about, you know, what do we think next? And the next is just what is exactly what you said. It's milled restorations, right? Complete. 
right out of the mill. Not no, and I, I've used this. I've said this for a while, and I always I used to get the look. Now I don't get the look anymore. But the the first statement was, no one ever wants, no doctor wants a furnace in their office. People kind of look at you funny. I'm like, no, 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 think about it. No one wants a furnace in their office. They want to, if they're going to finish a restoration, they'd like to be able to ideally take it out of the mill, maybe polish it and seat it. And that's it. And the furnace has become for us a necessary requirement to get from part A to part B in a, in a very efficient time period. But no one wants that. So if you could get Emacs coming out of the mill, maybe multi-layered or bi-layered with some translucency to it or transition to it right out of the mill that can be polished. And if you end up doing a case where you wanted to do something more, you know, if it's multiple units or you're trying to match eight to nine uh, on a central, maybe you end up having a, you know, $1,500 or $2,000 glaze furnace because that's all you need. The, the products would be sintered all and crystallized. All you would need to do is apply some stain on it if you were trying to match it and fire it in eight minutes and be done. And most offices probably wouldn't even need to do that necessarily. So I think that's the ultimate goal. I think Serona took a big step to try to get something faster and more efficient and open up zirconia chair side. And I think the, you know, the real big jump then from this is going to be, you know, furnace free, however you want to say it. But I think it'll furnace free is ultimately the goal, I think, for everybody is how do you get there and with what technology do you have to get there with? So I, I would say when we say furnace free, I would say that Ultimately, it's, this is not a material issue. This is more of a manufacturing issue or a milling issue uh, because the material zirconia can be made pre-sintered uh, and Emac certainly can be done you know, post-crystallized, which is what your pressing product is essentially. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, as I think about that, I think about that, that is more as we get milling technology that's better. Yeah, and I do think one of the things that's, you know, you, you follow that track a little bit, what that allows you to do then, in a case for us, like with Emacs, if that could if that could actually work and come out of the mill complete, you could mill. You we could then could make a multi layer block. For sure, I mean it'd be much even easier. In fact, you have a multi layer block in your pressing. Yeah, we can make the ingot because that's powder packed. We could actually make that. So you could actually make a you can make a block that's layered. You could make you could do an implant abutment right out of the mill that's dent shaded and just seat it. You wouldn't have to go through any firing. I mean, it it really. And when you start following the path, it's like, wow, that would be really cool. And it would really change. It would dramatically, I think, change how new owners, especially, or people looking at the technology said, wow, this is really simple. And it's pretty much what I'm getting from a lab. It looks like it's multi-layered and I'm just dropping it in complete right out of the mill. Yeah, so, you know, and, and it's interesting you say that, you know, I'm a, I'm a PPO office and one of the things I love doing is uh, using some of the multi-layered CEREC blocks, whether it be Empress or Vita Trilux or the CEREC block, which is actually the Vita block. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I like using those and just polishing them because they sometimes come out looking pretty darn good. And, and you know, when you're only getting paid six, seven hundred bucks for a restoration, you know, it makes logical sense sometimes to do those. You know, the question then becomes, uh, or the challenge that I faced was, uh, who wants to deal with fracturing restorations? Uh, yeah. So that's why, you know, many of us made the move to Emacs. Uh, but before we talk about Emacs, you know, I, I wanted to ask, you know, why would somebody choose, you know, what is the need for zirconia? What is the fascination with zirconia? Because if you look at the NYU study, and, and at this stage, almost 10 years of work with Emacs, I mean, what is the real benefit to zirconia? when we have a material that holds up unbelievably well and looks pretty damn awesome. I would say if I was, uh, 
and trying to be as objective as possible, which is not always easy, but trying to put yourself in, in somebody else's shoes looking at it from a clinical perspective. I think zirconia offers a couple things that Emacs doesn't well. Emacs does a lot of things well. I think it's shown to be very durable uh, over time. It does require, though, there are some limitations to what you can do as far as reduction uh, with Emacs because of the structure of the material and the strength of it and the fracture toughness of lithium disilicate. And if you go thinner, you really need to bond it. I would say with zirconia, it gives you the opportunity at least to be in a situation where I could do a, a posterior crown. I probably can reduce it less and conventionally cement it and have that restoration not fail, fail being fracture or break. So that I think there's a, and I'll, I'll go to a step further. I also think there's a question a little bit of, um, you know, there are offices that are, I still think that are transitioning off. There's a percentage of offices that are still using a fair amount of consistently doing PFMs that are transitioning out. So they're looking for something that they know they can put in that's conventionally cementable, that's really strong, that's not going to break, that maybe looks like a white metal. And zirconia, I think for a lot of people now transitioning out, fit that requirement uh, as a material that's not going to necessarily fail. Even if I'm you know, really thin in spots, it's probably still going to be pretty tough to hold up longer term. So I, that's what I think. My perception is it feels like there's an element to it of creating you know, a very tough material that's got flexibility to go really thin, that's you know, conventionally cementable really all the time, so it's easier placement. And you know, you can, then you get into this debate on aesthetics, you know, what's good enough and what's better. And am I putting in something now that's, that looks better than what I was doing before? I mean, that's, you know, that's becomes very subjective. Well, that, that's about the hands of the person that's making it. Right. And I do think, but I, I think from a technical standpoint, there are some things that Zirconia offers that Emacs, that address some Emacs limitations. Interesting. It's un- unbelievable to hear you say this, by the way. I mean, as well, I mean, I could say, well, why would you ever do it? But I also think, I know practically speaking, and, I'm, and from all of our experience chair side, what we know is, all right, we recommend one and a half millimeters of reduction. And we know that bonding really supports the restoration better. And, and cement bonds really well to glass. So lithium disilica is a great material to bond to two structure. So when you go thinner and you bond it, pretty much as you know, chairside doctors virtually have a hundred percent success rate with Emacs because even if they know they go thin, they bond it. They're using one of probably three cements on the market that are all very good, and they get great clinical results. Now, if you take that out of that realm into the general market, that may say, "I was using a lot of PFMs. I'm transitioning to something else. I'm going to go zirconia because I can do a similar prep. I can drop it in with conventional cement, and I'm done. It's a white metal." Yeah. If I go with Emacs, then I'm going to have to change my prep because I need to get more production. I'm probably going to have to bond, which I didn't have to do before. And that's where I see the differences. So if you, I don't, some of it could be construed as a weakness and some of it could just be, this is what, this is what the market is. You know, you've got segments of the market that um, want to move in a certain direction and have a solution that fits what they want. Well, you know, I, I think of it, uh, maybe this is a cynical side of me. Uh, I, I think, I think Zirconia is taking off for two main reasons, and I call it following the money. Number one, it feeds into the laziness of most dentists that they don't want to change anything that they're doing. So they want to do their feather preps. They want to do, you know, the minimal reduction. They want to cement with zinc phosphate or whatever in the world they're they're using with, uh, with it. And then I also look at it from the lab side. I think there are significant reasons that labs 
have moved to Zirconia over PFM. Uh, and I think with Zirconia, there is significantly, there's, uh, I mean, I couldn't even imagine how many Zirconia products are out there, hundreds and hundreds of Zirconia products. Uh, they're inexpensive to fabricate because you can buy a puck and probably the average puck, you can get 20 to 25 restorations in there. Uh, so, you know, the, the cost factors for the lab give them a, um, a real reason to want to use Zirconia. I definitely agree with that because we see that on the lab side of our business. It's a very, the one thing that zirconia does do in the puck form is it's, it's extraordinarily efficient to mill, to process overnight in bulk because you can mill in bulk in the puck, you can fire in bulk overnight, and it's very economical to process. And they don't typically come back because they don't break. Yeah. So from a standpoint of, from those criteria, I think I agree with you. That's probably a big reason why it's taken off. I will say I, I was watching a commercial, or I saw a commercial today that I thought was interesting. And Bob has said this, Dr. Or Dr. Ganley, uh, Mr. Ganley from our company, our CEO has said this in the past that, you know, something is good and then it becomes, it doesn't become bad necessarily, but something else becomes better. So, and then that eventually becomes good because something else becomes better to that. And I agree. If you look at, you know, any industry, you see developments of technology and materials or products or whatever, and there's always, you know, good becomes there's a better and then there's something better than that. And that's kind of the, the process of advancement of materials. And it, you know, the cynical part of me looks at it and goes, and it's, like I said, it's difficult for me to be objective because I work at Iowa Clark and we sell a lot of Emacs. I look at it and think, okay, are what we doing is what is happening now better than, you know, a high strength glass ceramic like Emacs or any of the equivalent material ingots that are now coming to market, similar to Emacs or lithium silicate or disilicate that provide aesthetics and durability. Is what we're doing now better? And what defines better at this point? You know, that's where it gets a little fuzzy because there's the aesthetic component of better. There might be the functional, the restoration will never break. Does that make it better because it'll never fracture or it's easy to, to seat because you can always cement it? Like that's where it gets a little fuzzy. I think if you were to go back to CEREC, your CEREC 2 days and go from CEREC 2 to CEREC 3D, you would say, well, this is clearly better, right? The interaction, the software, the not, what you can do, what you can see, how you can design, that's better. I think this category is a little fuzzy on what's better right now. That's more of a personal opinion than anything, but I've, I've always heard that with things eventually good becomes good and then there's a better. And- yeah, I mean, everything good is replaced by better. Sure, without you know, BlackBerry. Look, who would have thought that BlackBerry would essentially be dead? <laughs> right. I mean, that was the coolest thing ever when BlackBerry came out. That was the best technology to receive, retrieve uh, messages, and communicate by email by far. It wasn't even there wasn't even a remotely a remotely close competitor to that. The BlackBerry was it, and I don't even think they exist anymore. I think they're out of business. They actually they sell Android phones now. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's right. I yeah. do. So, um, so speaking of uh, of uh, of archaic being cut out by newer and BlackBerry being cut out by Android and iPhone, I remember when I started with Sarek, it was all Vita. I mean, Vita. I mean, I don't know the exact percentages, but Vita owned ninety nine percent of the block market. Yeah, we had like five percent. Yeah, so ninety five percent of the block market, and then in fact, you had a product called ProCAD, which we we call Empress on a stick. Which may have not been the, you know, I don't know formulation wise if that's actually true or not. Um, but then I think really we saw the block market for Ivor Clark turn when you guys came out with Empress CAD. 
So how did you guys go from having 5% of the market to, I don't know if you guys are allowed to say what percentage you have now or what you had at the highest, but I would, uh, the assumption was from my end that you had 80 to 85% of the market at one point in time. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we're, you're, we're pretty close to that. We're in the, I'd say around the 80-ish range, um, which is, it's, it's very high. I mean, it's really, sometimes you, you know, it borders on absurdly high in terms of what the, the black market share is. And I'll tell you the, the why and the how that we got there. Procad was very similar chemistry to Empress. It wasn't exact. And we were very hesitant at the time to really blur the line between the ingot and the block. That was our first. Was that about labs not wanting you to do that? Yes. Yes. It was very touchy. And remember, we were a lab business first. Yeah. Like predominantly. And that was a big, that was always a big controversy. And from our perspective, I think we looked at it on the clinical side of the business and where I was in the the digital side in CAD camp early on was this is going to take off. And it is what it is. Like the Empress brand will carry into the chair side market and really benefit us tremendously. And I, I think there was the concern was, well, there's not enough upside to offset a lab being upset, right? That was kind of the concern. And the chemistries weren't exactly the same. So what ended up happening was when we launched Empress CAD, there was actually modifications to the Empress aesthetic became the new ingot. So we launched, it was for those people who actually remember that Empress became an Empress aesthetic line that was released. That chemistry then matched exactly to our, what became our Empress CAD block. So there was almost a, there was a merging of technologies to optimize the aesthetics and the strength as much as we could with the uh, Lucite crystals to get a really aesthetic restoration, whether it was pressed or milled. And we launched it. It was pretty much what you were getting from the lab. You were going to get on a, on a mandrel at that point. And I think the industry started to take off. But what was what precipitated or what preceded that was something a lot more important that was no one necessarily knew about. You just started to see the result. As we started to grow a little bit in CAD CAM and the market started to move a little bit, our CEO had made a a definitive statement at a a strategy session that said, we are going to develop technologies, materials, technologies, whatever, for digital technology. That is our our objective going forward. That's what we're going to be involved in. That's how we're going to grow as a company. This goes back, I don't know, 2003, 2004. It was really early on. And from that point, what you started to see was the development of the translation or the transfer of the and migration of the technologies for the Empress block. We came out with really a process. So we came out with a chairside furnace. We came out with the first version of multi-link cement, which was super fast uh, and very high bond strength to support the restorations. The blue phase, at the time, the blue phase curing light was the first one. Like everything was advanced and kind of went sequence of a digital workflow, including a chairside furnace. And all those pieces started to fall because they were all being sort of worked on and were developed and, and driven into the marketplace. And that's when that started. And also the focus from our reps to say, you will, you're will you going to work with the office and we're going to help support that office, be really successful with the machine because we're going to be able to you know, essentially provide service along that entire process from the block to the cement, uh, to the characterization materials, whether you polish it or glaze it, a furnace, and then cement to finish it. And we also had laser technology to modify and, and handle troughing around crowns to get better and more accurate digital impressions. So all that workflow all happened at the same time. He made a decision that we were going to develop in a digital and everything else in our focus of our reps changed. And what you see now is 
you know, our reps are so engaged with their CAD CAM offices. They've, they are the best expert most of our, our offices have. Our reps are, can be the best support mechanism by far for that office because they can answer questions on any material, um, especially restorative material, how it works, what it is, how it functions, what we think of it. Um, and I'll give you a really good case in point. When, when recent materials have launched, going back to Lava Ultimate and then to Seltra and Obsidian, we would get calls. Our reps would get calls and say, what is this material? What do you guys think of it from offices directly? That wouldn't, I don't know how many times that happens in any industry where the, the office actually calls, you know, company A about company B's product. And what that's, what we try to do is align our reps as good as we could with being experts in the workflow to help an office, but also understanding materials. And I still contend now, I think they know more about everybody else's materials than anybody else in the country right now. And it, yeah, and it shows, I mean, when they're, they, we have webinars, we talk about updates and, and material updates on things. They ask extraordinarily pointed questions. They're very on point with their content, how they communicate it. Um, they're very accurate with what they communicate. We try to give them as many tools as possible so they can, they can speak like a digital workflow expert, restorative expert. And I think they do. And it, that, as much as anything, the materials kind of followed suit because Empress CAD came out, then Emacs came out after, and then all the indications for Emacs and chair-side applications. But our reps and our focus as a company were, you know, steps one, building block one, one and two that really set the tone for where we were going. And the rest of it's kind of fallen into place, but it, we followed the same model. And our reps really do a phenomenal job. Okay, so I, I want to get into talking about the birth of Emacs. But before I get into that, so we talked about, I, mean, I would say Emacs, uh, you know, the, the commitment to certainly go digital and the, for, let's call it foresight, because we're talking 10, 12 years ago, I mean, chairside CAD CAM was nothing compared to what it is today. So, you know, how, how, how does Ivoclar prevent itself from becoming the next BlackBerry where you own, you own just like somebody else owned 90% of the market and then you took it? You took essentially all of it. How, how, how does that? How do you make sure that doesn't happen? I'm going to give you uh, the benefit of experience about being in this industry for a while. I'll give you a, a short story and also a perspective. I started when we had five percent, and I saw what happened to Vita. From and Vita is still a very good private company, very similar to ours. From I'll say lack of development of staying ahead of the curve in terms of material development and the reduction of support forces, support people and personnel in a market and what kind of effect that had in terms of their position in the marketplace. Um, uh, the other perspective I have, and that was, those were, I'll say, decisions that were probably made along the way, right? Right. The other perspective of a competitor who was really dominant and has essentially disappeared was when we introduced the laser into the marketplace and we were we introduced a diode laser specifically to get involved with improving digital impressions. That was the predominant reason. We thought this was a great strategy to improve impression taking in general, but specifically digital impressions. And it was fast, it was efficient, it worked, you know, it was proven technology, it was there didn't seem to be any magic to it, and no one was doing it. When we entered the market, because I was involved with the development and the launch of the product, BioLays. I went to a BioLays booth and was essentially mocked, like, you're coming to our booth to learn how to sell lasers. That was said verbatim, like, right to my face. And I, I was actually going there to meet someone about an industry 
we were in a, some kind of laser committee meeting. I had to meet somebody there. And it was some of their, I don't know if it was their rep or, or some multiple reps or whatever, but it was very condescending comment, very arrogant. And then a year later, a very similar circumstance happened. I was meeting this person at a, we had to go to a meeting together and I walked into the booth and it was like night and day. And the comment was, you guys cleaned our clock on the dial of market. And what I realized was part of it is decisions that you make, you have to maintain a, a strong position in your material development, your product development, whether it be workflow, whether it be materials, whatever it is. And the other part of it is not letting yourself think that you're more than you are. And there's an, you, know, you can become very arrogant as a market leader. And that's the biggest downfall that companies have, I think, is you become, we're really great. No one's ever going to pass us. Why would anyone want to do something different than what we're doing today? I mean, we all know Emacs is going to get replaced. We talk about it all the time. There will be another product that replaces Emacs. And that's just the way it is. That's the cycle of product development. And we're, gonna, we're in a race right now to make sure we get there first. You want to be the replacement for Emacs. Absolutely. Absolutely. We don't want to be challenged. Like you could, we could make the argument, I would say today, um, I could make the argument that our bigger concern on the lab side of the business is Bruxer has taken a lot of business and has become a replacement to a large extent for Emacs as a restorative material, especially in the posterior. Chair side, we're at risk of that happening as well in some shape or way, shape or form. So for us, it's what is our next development that gets us to jump the current product on the lab side of the business where it's being milled in puck form through labs um, or chair side? What is the product that gets us uh, that leapfrogs everybody and keeps us ahead? Because if we don't do that, even though we're not arrogant and we want to stay as market leaders, you know, if your product falls behind, you're in trouble. So it becomes product development and the race to stay ahead of that and having unique developments that work and stick to our core values of, performance and aesthetics, and also a real persistence to be, I'll say humble and not arrogant about where we are. Like, I don't, I don't like necessarily talking about market share, not because, not because it's proprietary information or anybody can't figure it out. It's more, I don't want to make it sound like, wow, we own the market. We can do whatever we want. Cause I really don't believe that. No, I've, you can't. I've seen two companies direct in my span of time at, at Ivaclar you know, had the tables turned on them in short periods of time by us. So I know what it's like. I've seen the other side. I don't want to be on the other side. I have no desire. <laughs> I have no desire to. <laughs> That's not good for your job, is it, Don? <laughs> I know. That I've seen it happen firsthand. I have no desire to see that. So, you know, for me, and I think for our organization, it's not, we don't really have to talk about it, but it's, I think we act and, and convey the idea of we got to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep growing and advancing and, um, stay ahead and continue to do what we do in the field really well, which our, I, I say this before, I said this before about our reps, the reps become an extension of us as an organization to not settle. We don't want anyone to look at it and go, well, we own the market. They're never going to switch. No, no, no. This is how do we help that office be successful? Continue to do what you do best, which is service the office. We're going to generate great products that work. And if we both do that, we work together really well, we're going to continue to be ahead of everybody else. Maybe not at the same market share levels that we are now, but we'll still we'll be ahead of this category. Yeah. And, and, and at the end of the day, from a pure business perspective, you can afford to lose market share as long as the market is growing, because then ultimately you're selling the same volume at, at the end of the day. So right. Yeah. And I think for us, you know, if we were, I, the way I look at it is in I've said this to our team before inside our organization. I've said it to people outside. 
I have, I don't like the conversation of saying, of anyone saying inside our building that, well, you know, if we weren't at, if we drop 5%, it's not that big a deal. My perspective is we will fight, scratch and claw for every percent to keep it. And if somebody earns it and they have a really great product that has a niche that works, good for them. But once you concede one point, one point becomes five, one point becomes 10. And I really do believe that. I think you strive to not lose and continue to grow your business. We try to figure out ways how to grow our share, which sounds almost ludicrous to say, but if you're not doing that, you're inevitably going to go backwards and you're going to start losing. You know, it's, it's, and, and listen, I like Vita. I think they make great products. But to me, the, the icing was when they invited 12 of us over to Germany and they literally tried to argue with me about how Mark II doesn't break. And I'm like, you're right. It doesn't break in certain situations. But on posterior teeth, on molars and second molars, it has a good chance of breaking, just like Empress has a good chance of breaking on molars. I'm like, so you can't fight the market. You know, the market says we want faster, we want cheaper, we want better. And, and ultimately, that's what you have to deliver. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a losing battle. I mean, you can't convince someone that as a market, especially that's had, got their fingers on the market, like yourself and others that train and speak in the marketplace. You guys know what's going on. You see what's going on from Dennis every day, way more than we do. And directly, and you see it because they're going to talk to you in classes and programs and tell you what's going on. And, you know, that's not made up information. That just is what it is. So you got to take it and say, okay, this is where the market's going. Do we want to try to influence the market in another direction or do we you know, go with the flow, so to speak, and try to develop things that fit that? And those are choices you have to make, but usually that's a losing, it's a losing battle to try to convince someone they're not right. That very, that very seldom, very seldom works. Very seldom. So how, how did Emacs come about? What, what, where did Emacs get born from? Emacs was the successor to Empress. And the intent was at the time that it was going to be an encompassing brand called Empress 2 that was going to encompass higher strength materials um, you, you'd have traditional glass ceramics, you would have a substructure material that was lithium disilicate, and then layered material to be able to put on top of it, universal layering material. And that didn't work out so well. Well, when I first started, <laughs> there were some challenges with, from what I recall, because I was very, very new to the industry as well as the company, with coefficient of, coefficients of thermal expansion of the lithium disilicate as a substructure material and the layering ceramic. And it wasn't so much that they didn't work, but the it was the way it was described to me as a pretty narrow window for success. Yeah. So in other words, it was so hard to do that. Yeah, it became if you really, really, you know, if you could really nail the the parameters of it, it worked. And if you didn't, it, there's a good chance that it wouldn't. And going back to reformulation when that was going on, we realized that lithium disilicate could be modified a little bit to look more aesthetic and more translucent. That became the MO became the LT, and the LT looked you know, reasonably good as a monolithic material. And when we got restorations done and we started doing some evaluations with it, the basic premise then became, wow, a one-piece crown is going to be pretty durable. It should hold up much better than a layered restoration. I mean, that was, it made logical sense, but to that point, there wasn't really a strong, very durable monolithic restoration. And I don't think people were saying monolithic back then, but no, no, we weren't. I remember it's millennium was the first time we saw Emacs. I, f I think that's when you guys were bringing it to us, but it wasn't even Emacs as a block. It was like Emacs for the lab. It was a family. Yeah. It was a family with a substructure material and it was the same idea. 
Emax was then recalibrated to be a substructure material, a layering ceramic, and then also a traditional, um, it was uh, not feldpathic. There was a traditional layering ceramic that we used, which was designed, floor, uh, floor appetite, right. a layering ceramic. And then there was also the, the lithium disilicate. And what ended up happening was those were all components. They were like pillars of a house. Yeah, it was the most confusing thing I ever saw in my life, by the ended way. ended up having pieces of all this stuff. And what ended up, and there was actually a zirconia component that was zirconia substructure. And what ended up happening was the lithium disilicate version really took off because labs started to realize this looks nice. I can press it and be done with it in one, you know, one press. It looks really good and it's durable. So it fit a need all of a sudden of I need something stronger than Empress that looks better than a PFM. And in this case, it, it was ended up being proved out to be more durable. And then when we went chair side, the chair side block, we never really anticipated no, you the success have. rate because of the firing times were 36 30 minutes. minutes. Yeah, yeah. We, were, you, you, we knew going in that was going to be a challenge. And that what ended up happening was, back to your point about, say, Empress or Mark II, people that were having failures with their machine and posterior restorations had gone to a PFM or zirconia restoration on a molar. And then little by little started to try lithium disilicate or try Emacs and say, wow, I can, I can mill this and fire it. It takes a little bit longer, but then I don't have to send it out. So I can still kind of make this work. And I, I think out of some necessity and some convenience to do one visit dentistry, it started to work in the posterior. And then, you know, 36 became 32 and then became 26. And we ended up getting the time down to something, you know, 14, more, 15 minutes now. So it was, it's been an evolution. We learn. You know, I, I say this to our reps, I say this to people outside our organization. We learn about materials almost every day, just like everybody else does. We're just in it every day. I mean, we're about physical properties and chemistries and things that we learn about materials and our, even our own materials. So I think the benefit of being a dental company and having a real focus on restorative materials is you're, you're all in with what's going on on the material explanation side and how things function. And Believe me, we learn we learn something all the time about materials and what's important and um, what what constitutes clinical success or what can in, indicate clinical success long term. I, I remember Armin Armin Mirzayan was the first one I knew that did a Emax monolithic restoration with Sarek. It was the I think it was an HO block at the time. It might have been, yeah. It was so ugly, <laughs> and he. Mem- I remember he made a statement which I laughed at at the time. He said, this will change Sarek dentistry and this material, as soon as they, you know, make it better looking, will, will change everything. And I laughed at him because I was like, that's, that's crazy, right? Yeah. It's, it's ugly and it takes 36 minutes to do and all of those things. And, and look what it went to. I mean, now we're talking about high translucency material, the medium translucency material. I mean, truthfully, the only thing you're missing in Emacs is a multi-translucent yeah, you know, and that—that's more of not obviously not from not desire. That's more from a you know complexity of manufacturing it. So yeah, Armin Armin really could see what it did as a product, whether it was perfect or not when we launched it. Luckily, he doesn't care how things look sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I think, but I also think he got the whole point of my the biggest headache I have is a fractured restoration, and if yeah. this stops that, oh my god, this is great. And you know, to a large extent, I could probably say the same thing about zirconia today. Right. Um, that's probably why a lot of people are gravitating toward because the odds are it's, I'd say it's probably never going to break. I'm sure it could under circumstances, yeah. but the odds are pretty slim that you're going to have an abs- 
actually. But I think people are moving to, and listen, I don't have anything against Zirconia per se, but I think, I think the move to Zirconia is follow the money. It's $59, $69 restorations, $79 restorations that you simply can't, you can't even, you know, in theory, you really can't do Emacs at that price point as a lab. Uh, right. because no, you it, can't. You you can't. Know, because the cost of the material is so much and the labor that goes with it. Because you can say, well, I can do a pressing, but the human being doing the pressing costs more than the material itself. So, it, you know, so it, and I want to know who made the decision to buy Pentron Laboratories? That had to have been uh, a Bob, Mr. Ganley and uh, George Tosowski, who's the head of R&D, vice president of R&D in North America. And Pentron was an interesting fit uh, for us in terms of some patents that we purchased um, that they had patents on. We had patents on lithium disilicate, so did they. It's also become a, a manufacturing facility for us now. It's evolved quite a bit from what it was to what it is today. Uh, but we manufacture a big chunk of our blocks and pucks now are starting in North America in New Jersey. Yeah. And it, it's become it it's really helped us with a lot of things. We have we feel like we have a really good second facility to manufacture blocks and you know with the way the world is today if something were to ever happen in europe and you couldn't get blocks here for any period of time it's critical to be able our, our patients would be gumming it <laughs> yeah it's a tough i mean you think about think about things that can happen you know just because of terrorism or threats of terror oh, how about volcano ashes in the air and your stuff can't come over I think that really precipitated a lot of it because we were shut down from shipping. Yeah. And there's a period of time where most dealers now are on, you know, electronic orders that are pretty tight. You know, there's not a lot of leap. That's how they make money. Yeah. So this is that really, that acquisition, I think, tied up some probably loose ends and gave us some access to patents. And I'm not only on glass, but also on zirconia that we're actually still utilizing or beginning to utilize more now. So there was a lot of value in that and the organization facility wise became has really grown dramatically into something that's really pretty cool and a great I don't know what you guys paid for it, but I think it was probably one of the better buying decisions ever because it allowed you to own lithium disilicate from A to Z essentially because I remember when you guys were doing Empress two, which is the original lithium disilicate, I, I was doing OPC three G. Uh, which was uh, Pentron's uh, mm-hmm. lithium disilicate or their competitor. You know, Pentron was always known as a copycat company or, or whatever it may be. And uh, they actually had good products. Yeah. And um, so I know when you guys got that, you essentially owned Emacs from that point on. And obviously all this other stuff that I didn't even understand has been unbelievably helpful to you there as well. Yeah, it was a really good, it's one of those under the radar type things that when it happened, it was like, what, what are we doing? Why is this, how does this make sense? And in the long run, it really played out and panned out well for us. But you guys didn't get the Pentron clinical side. No, no. I think, you know, I always wondered if that was ever on the table because it, it, it turns out the lab side was probably more valuable than the yeah, clinical I mean, side. At the time though, the clinical side was way more valuable yeah. than what we actually got at the time. And now I think it's a different perspective because the markets moved so much to glass, chair-side glass, and now zirconia, which, like I said, we actually got some access to the technology they had on zirconia as well. So it's been, it was a good, it ended up being a really good fit. I think we would have taken the clinical business for sure if we could have got it, but I'm sure the price tag was probably too much. It's interesting. So as, as we're talking about the clinical side, do you guys see, I mean, do you see a lot of excitement or growth on the clinical side of Ivoclaw's business? I mean, uh, well, what you and I probably refer to as the analog side, you know, bonding agents, compo- I mean, that stuff bores me. Yeah, I think, I think what I was saying earlier is that um, they're incremental changes, you know, like you, and I think that can be 
that's not necessarily bad, but I'll, I'll give you a you know a really simple example. We've had I've had doctors, a lot of doctors actually recently that have migrated over to our adhesive pen, the adhesive pen that we use, and the, the the adhesive we have is good. I mean, it's not I don't know that it's gangbusters great, but it's a really good adhesive, and it's delivered in a really fast, a simple, efficient, clean mechanism now in the pen, and people really love it. And you think, all right, you know, I get it, but it's not, I look at it still from the perspective of you know, two years ago or three years ago, we launched the, the ability to do a middle of chair side bridge. And now, now it's custom abutments. Like those are giant, to me, those are giant leaps in technology between the milling, the scanning, the design, all, and the material. To me, the pen doesn't seem that way, but in the, in the category that you're in, I think you see, and still see, you know, I'll say dramatic or somewhat significant improvements of making it easier, faster, better. So instead of having two bottle system that you dispense and mix, now you've got something that's super efficient, that doesn't waste material and, and works and gives you a great bond. So I think you end up seeing, I would consider them more incremental changes, but every day, um, whether it's depth of cure or better aesthetics with a depth of cure or um, better wear or polish, even on, on um, millable or on uh, place uh, resin restorations, there are always going to be improvements because... You know, we want to make things that either look better, perform better, or both, um, whether it's cleanup or durability or whatever the case may be. So I think the excitement, like to your point, if you're in the digital world, you look at the other, the analog world and think, what's the big deal? But if you didn't have a machine and you were dealing with, you know, fussing around with bonding agents and impression material and temporary material, you'd probably have a different perspective on, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, you, your cool factor would be a different scale based on what you were in. I mean, no offense, but that's that's crazy talk. <laughs> I mean, I've been listening. I mean, in all seriousness, you know, you know how hard it is for somebody to change a bonding agent. Like, there's nothing in my life I'm using that's five or seven years old, other than my bonding agent. I mean, that that to get me to change bonding agents, you would have to have some kind of dramatic improvement. You can't come to me and say our bond strength is ten percent higher. I'm like, so what? You know, it doesn't matter, right? But, but you know, changing a material, you know, changing a block material, say, hey, say, you know, hey, how, you know, how quick was I to change from, say, Empress to Emacs? Because, because the stuff stopped breaking. I mean, yeah. ultimately. Oh, yeah. All right. So last couple of things here, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, we, we've talked about, uh, since you're so open to talking about competitors, uh, what, what's your take on these hybrid ceramic materials? Uh, I like, this is what I, I love certain things about them. One, I'll speak specific to Anamic. I really love the fact that they were able to weave a sponge-like ceramic with resin interwoven between it. I just think it's pretty cool. Um, Dr. Tom Hill was a PhD that works for us, and I have talked about it a lot. It is a really interesting technology that they figured out how to make these blocks um, because it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to meld two different, completely different materials together and then also have it millable. And mill, mill pretty damn good. They mill really fast. The margins mill very clean. Um, so I think there are some really big advantages to it in, in that regard. Um, Performance-wise, I think good. I haven't heard really a ton of a ton of negative in terms of, you know, I hear, I don't really like the way it looks. It, looks, it don't look that great. It's not translucent. It, it dulls out. I think some of that is a function of, it's two chemistries or two different materials. So when you have a ceramic and a resin, 
you know, you would polish resin. If it was an all resin material, you would handle it a different way. You would polish it a certain way. You'd maintain a luster. Ceramic would be just the opposite. You might even glaze it or do a, a different type of diamond polisher on it. And I think the challenge is when you have a hybrid like that, it's how do you get that or even the bond? Like how does the bond surface work when you've got two different substrates? So I, I think the technical aspect is cool, but it also probably presents some challenges for them. I like the idea of it a lot. I mean, frankly, the idea that we would love the most, and it's not like everybody's not trying to figure out how to do this, is you have a, a resin, you know, you make a, a crown or make a block that's got a resin core with Emacs as the enamel that it's fused together. And then when you mill it, you get a crown that's denton on the inside and enamel on the outside. And that's your crown. Like that would be... Well, be, maybe you could have lithium disilicon as the sponge and resin woven into it. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, if we could do. Yeah, as long as we could mill the uh, the completely crystallized version. Yeah. So that's the. I think the challenge. I love the technology of it. I just think. Why it's, aren't you guys in that business? Why aren't you guys in that block segment? Uh, we are in the process of trying to overcome patents that apparently maybe other people have overcome or or ignored. Yeah, that could be as well. <laughs> um, we we won't, would never do that. So for us, um, there's at least one company that has a process patent on resin-based materials. Uh, and I'll say that's all resin, not necessarily resin hybrid, but resin-based blocks. So we've been trying to either work through it or around it. We've been having some challenges, um, and we're still trying to work through it. And it's just one of those things where I don't think we're ever going to get licensed for it just based on the relationship with the company and we really got to figure it out ourselves or, you know, we've made some blocks. We've actually milled some, we've gotten some really good results, but we still have the challenge of how do we, how do we get around the patent? So um, we're still working on it. It's just a, a function of, you, so you know, don't, you don't think they're bad materials. No, actually I will tell you this. If I was, if I, if you were to ask me point blank uh, as a new owner, what I should have in my office, I think having a multi-layered block, whether it's Mark II or Empress, obviously I'm going to slant myself to Empress more. No, but well, Empress looks better, quite frankly. A Forte, a Forte or, a, or an Empress CAD multi are two beautiful layered materials for, for certain cases in the anterior. Um, Emacs is a great posterior application for restorations, um, for partial coverage, especially inlays. I would never pack composite unless I absolutely had to. I, I would take a scan and mill it and drop in a resin restoration as many times as I could, especially where there was a contact. I'd let the machine mill the contact all day long. And those restorations will be in there forever because they've got protection from the existing cusps that remain. They're not going to be under flex forces like a crown would. I think they're tremendous applications. I'm surprised more companies don't focus all their time and attention on that. Um, but I, I think it's a great fit. I really do think it's a great application. I think it would make composite placement very very fast and very efficient and, and i say very efficient it would be less manual labor for a clinician to cement a milled restoration of composite than it would be to pack composite in any way shape or form so so so, so you consider namic a resin restoration i mean sir, there are, that's actually in our world it's a separate category because it's a resin hybrid we consider it a resin hybrid okay. uh, because of the category of material and the way the way we would describe it is there's a lot of ceramic in there and resin so <laughs> the other materials are pure resin what about Sarasmart? what's your take on that material uh, i actually like the fact that they've got some they made some modifications to the filler um, which logically seemed to make sense i think it's it mills 
just like the lava material mills, super clean at the margins, like really nice, very smooth. But unlike lava material, it actually sticks to teeth as crowns. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what's been interesting. So I would say yes, based on what we've seen so far. I don't know how many people are doing crowns with it, per, per se, but the modulus is actually lower than lava, which means in theory, it's going to have more flux. So I, I don't know. Like if I, I, what this is my guess is what's happened since lava's pulled the indication and they've had issues with the bonding of their, as a crown indication. Um, I would say most people that are going to use a Sarah Smart or a Lava Ultimate are probably milling partial coverage and they're probably milling crowns out of other materials because they know it won't flex. I think the general consensus is if it's all resin, it's going to flex. If it flexes, it's, it has a likelihood to debond and, you know, then what? I'm going to replace it. So I don't yeah. want to do that. And you consider enamic different from that? Enamic's a little bit, yeah, it is different. I mean, the chemistry is really a lot more percentage-wise, a lot more ceramic. So that's, to me, I don't think, they don't have a flex, from what I can tell, what we tell as a company, a flex issue as much as they have a substrate surface issue. Like if they were, if something, if somebody had an enamic crown debond, I would probably assume, okay, well, how did you treat it? Because the surface area is either, it's resin and ceramic. So, you, you know, you you etch ceramic, you sandblast resin uh, or modify it to be able to get a bond to it. Well, I don't know. Maybe you do some hybrid combination of both or one or the other. I don't know if it's going to give you the optimal bonding surface just based on the chemistry of the material. I, I think mixing the two materials is tough to get the finish to look nice and to get a good surface to bond to. Like glass bonds really well to two structure. Whether it's Vita, ours, Empress, Emacs, it just bonds great to glass. Zirconia doesn't, or to two-structure. Zirconia doesn't. Resin will, um, but resin in a bigger app, a bigger indication may flex. So I think the hybrid version is difficult to bond to from what it, it appears anyway. And then the issue with resin also is if it's, if it's uh, manufactured or milled, it's the hard, I mean, it's, it's too dense uh, for there to be any free bond uh, available. so Yeah, I mean, you really need to activate the surface uh, in some way, shape, or form to be able to get a bond to it. And that's, you know, I, the, a little bit of the downside of that material. I think for an inlay application especially, it's, you know, you're going to get a really good surface. You can get a good surface to bond to, and you're going to get any flex that you get. It's going to push it into the prep, not push it away from the margin. So um, I don't, I haven't heard a lot in the market of, partial coverage restorations debonding or coming out. I don't I don't think that will happen. I don't I haven't really heard a lot of that happening anyway, but I don't really anticipate that happening going forward either. So I think as I go back to my original premise of a new owner, I definitely would mill resin for partial coverage. I would look at multi-layered materials for specifically, you know, like laterals, um, where you're trying to get a good match in a blend or an anterior or eight and nine you're trying to match or premolar forward. And then something higher strength like Emacs or the zirconia material from Serona now is a posterior application because you need the strength and the, the toughness of the material to hold up long term. Well, Don, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you have lots of things going on in the Chicago office there, but um, I, got, I got to be honest with you. This has been the most interesting conversation uh, from a pure perspective of I have talked about every other product out there. <laughs> 
Well, I don't, <laughs> yes, you want to give my perspective on things. Like give me my perspective. Yeah, but that's what I love about you. I mean, I have been, and, and I think you probably roll your eyes every time we see each other because I'm straight up like, well, why aren't you doing this? Where are we at with this? Why are we sucking at that? You know, some things we are doing. Believe me, yeah. there are things that you bring up that I I, I get frustrated because I'm like, we're not there yet, but we're getting closer. It's so. kind of like the teleocat abutment block. I'm like, well, yeah, how long I, is that going to take to come out, right? Or my concept of, you know what? You need a tie base that's like milk, made out of peak material or something so we don't have to you know let me do tell it. you there are and there are things that we like as much as teleo is in the pipeline there are other things in the pipeline as well so it's not i think you're in some cases we hear things uh from yourself or from other people especially in this digital area that are i wish i had this and they're really good ideas and we may have just started them or in process of starting them and then it's navigating production and fda and everybody else so um well i'm going to give you another idea and i may have I may have mentioned this to you before. Um, you know how you put nail polish on? You have that little thing that you shake yeah. and then has a brush built into it. Mm-hmm. You, you need an adhesive pen with like one of those magnets or something in it. And that needs to be my glaze or my stain for my, uh, my ceramics. So I don't. Ha- I hate mixing that crap. I mean, I absolutely hate mixing oh, it. Oh, okay. That's actually I, a really good idea. I'd love to just sit there and shake like the shake the adhesive pen. Yeah. And then, you know, that would mix up whatever was in there. Yeah. And then I could have like a nail polish brush on there and I could just paint my glaze on. So I never had to mix my glaze. So I never got that sandy look to it or something like that. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know what it would take to do it. No, but, I don't. that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. See, I just learned something new today. I got a new idea today. Yeah. yeah you know, I think that, that, <laughs> that would be, I think that'd be a great product because it'd make my assistant's lives easier and my life easier. And you know, the other thing it would do for me, something like that is I could literally actually standing glaze in the mouth. Oh yeah. You'd have better control over it. I'd have way better control over it. And then I could take it out and stick it right in the oven. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, um, that that would be really nice certainly. And, uh, so, so Don, how can, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, easiest way, uh, I'll give you the, the best priority way. Uh, if I get a text, there's a really good chance that I'm going to answer it pretty quickly. Uh, my cell phone is 716-465-4425. Um, my email address is probably one of the longest emails in the history of dentistry, but I'll give it to you anyway. Uh, it's donald.bell at ivaclarvivident.com. Ivaclarvivident is all one word. Uh, and it is my full first name. It's not Don. It's Donald. Otherwise, I don't know where it goes, but it doesn't go to me. So, Donald, you I think Ivor Clark would just go ahead and make you a second email address that automatically yeah, forwards that. to I've you. I had a few people email me. Like, I sent it to Don Bell. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know why that where that's going oh, with. I think the favorite thing I got to tie. My favorite story is one time I gave out your cell. I was angry at Ivor Clark for something. <laughs> Who knows? I gave out your cell phone and email address, and I had my whole audience text you. Says I can't remember what it was. It was probably like, why don't we have TeleoCat abutment blocks or something? Oh, I'm like sure that. it was something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, please text this guy and ask him what does it take to get this done but don it, it's been awesome i mean literally you know to 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 literally work for ivoclar and we've talked about so many other products and this, oh yeah uh, great this, I, I appreciate it. this is fun to be able to sit and talk about things that are going this is the digital dentistry though it's everything that's going on right now so it's amazing by the way and 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 for those you know for those of us that want to learn more about ivoclar products uh i oh one thing i, I we got to mention this uh you guys allow dentists to come to ivoclar correct yeah, we actually, uh, we've been doing an, a, what's called the open house program at Iva Clara. We've been doing it for over eight years now. And um, we bring, once a month, we bring doctors into our facility. And it's a pretty small group. So you end up working with our rep. We try to organize it through our, 
our sales team to kind of balance out who gets access to the building and, and participate. Uh, but you get basically two days in the building to meet everyone, to spend time using materials, testing cements, working on ceramics. Uh, in the case now, we do abutments, start to finish. Like we do all kinds of things. And it's a very intensive interactive program that's meant to do short demo or short um, introduction of products and categories. And then we do a lot of hands-on and it gives, you know, doctors bring their staff or key person on their staff to learn more about how to handle products, get questions answered. Um, it's very, very interactive for us. It's, it's a really good way to learn from owners because we, you can sit in an organization, and not have any idea what goes on on the field. Uh, when you have people in front of you for two days, you learn about what they're doing in their office. And I think it's been a tremendous, it's a tremendous value for us. I don't know how many people realize that when they come into our building, I tell them that all the time. You guys should be paying them to come there. Yeah, they learn a ton. <laughs> I mean, they're basically, they have to get to our building. So yeah. they have to get to Amherst and then everything else we pick up and uh, from hotel and food. And we, all we ask is that they be interactive and they learn and, and be open because we, we learn a lot from them. They learn a lot from us. They get an introduction to all of our testing people and testing materials and our, and Dr. Tom Hill is a PhD in ceramics. And there's so much shared information. I think it's been really phenomenal. It's very grassroots. Like you learn so much from people in two days that uh, it's been a lot of fun. We still do it. And people, are you guys still doing the testing of all the different products? Yeah, we've actually, we've, we tweak that a little bit. We do, uh, we still do, we select certain materials that are current. We, we try to select like the current materials on the market or current topics to discuss because, um, you know, you cover like for us, I don't know, a version of somebody else's cement that's five years old doesn't do us any good anymore. No, so not we, try anymore to, yeah. we try to address stuff that's current and from a testing standpoint, but also on the materials science side, we don't really cover material science per se. We cover what's current topics in dentistry. So whatever, you know, current, either it's new products or new, you, know, you hear this phrase all the time about, you know, some test that's being done that's supposed to evaluate materials better, rumors on the street or whatever. We try to pick topics that are just current today and address some during the open house. Yeah, I've been to that. It's fun. You actually, like, I'll come in and say, okay, for example, I'm using XYZ uh, bonding agent and, and we'll literally test my technique. Uh, of that bonding agent against yours in my own hands and you'll see whether it's better or not. I mean, sometimes it is better, sometimes it's not better. And yeah. it's, it's quite interesting. Again, it goes back to our conversation and the overall conversation of your company all the way down from meeting the CEO who, and Mr. Ganley is an unbelievably down-to-earth person. It's, it's that ability to say, you know what, this is, we're in the bigger picture of dentistry and it's not about us owning every, every single share that we can by, you know, by cheating or putting misinformation out there. We want to earn it. And, you know, we'll recognize other, other companies that have great products. And, you know, that'll just make us work harder to get, uh, to get better there. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that. So, Well, I look forward to seeing you in August at Sierra World. And uh, the other thing I should also mention, you guys do these, um, these symposiums throughout the country for Seric owners? Yes, we run uh, one-day events that are really, I would best describe them as very good regional education programs. And you've participated in some of them mm -hmm. with us. Uh, we try to bring education to local areas and local regions. And it seems to work out really well. We get a lot of owners that come. We try to bring in really top-notch speakers to go over topics of materials and applications of indications and how to do things. And I always find people learn a lot during the symposiums and they also, we also get prospects that usually come in and spend the day 
learning about the digital workflow on the Serona system uh, and using our materials. And it gives them the ability to to really meet owners that they haven't a lot in the past or to that point. And they also get a chance to learn from really good speakers that are delivered to them, you know, in their backyard. They don't have to go fly to, you know, across country to go see and lecture. So I think it's been very valuable for us. Again, we learn, we learn so much. Our reps get really engaged at the grassroots level in their regions with the branches and the specialists and the owners, and it builds really good relationships. And we share a lot. We learn a lot about what people want to do, what they're doing, what they're struggling with. Like it's, it's really gives us great insight to what's going on. And in return, I think we give back a lot of really good education from top flight speakers. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, Don. Um, I'm going to, um, it was great having you on and uh, I would love to have you because we didn't even talk about abutments or bridges. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, you know, if you ever, if you ever want to do a part two to this, I do because you know, you know, if anything, I'm the implant guy, right? And I I didn't even, I didn't even use the word implant the whole time for God's sake. There's still implants. There's the rumor of who's going to be carrying what machines. How does that affect the market? What's going to happen? God, we didn't even talk about the Densply Serona merger. There's a, a whole bunch of stuff. We've I guess we have version two of it. Holy smokes, and we went an hour and 15 minutes. That was uh, pretty awesome. Thanks so much for listening to T-Bone Speaks with Dr. Tarun Agarwal. Remember to keep striving for excellence, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Hey, podcast family. T-Bone here. Are you a dentist looking to elevate your practice and profits? then pay close attention. Introducing the 3D Business Mastermind, the dental business coaching program designed for dentists who want to see real results. I've walked the path of practice ownership for nearly 25 years. I know your challenges. I felt your pain. This is your opportunity to overcome the chaos, the busyness, and the financial frustrations of owning a dental practice. Imagine a dental practice where your appointment book is highly productive, doing the dentistry you enjoy, your team is self-motivated, and your profits keep climbing. That's what the 3D Business Mastermind is all about. In this exclusive mastermind, you'll join a league of ambitious dentists driven to elevate their practices. You'll gain access to proven strategies, personalized coaching, and a community that understands your journey. So if you're ready to supercharge your dental practice and enjoy the success you deserve, Visit www.3d-dentists.com and take the first step towards a brighter future in dentistry by filling out the 3D Business Mastermind application. Now, let's get to this week's episode.